Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo, or to play on a portable player, such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions, or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This program, entitled Flesh and Blood, A Study of the Incarnate Word, was presented by Dr. William Marshner, Professor of Theology at Christendom College at St. Leo the Great Catholic Church in Fairfax, Virginia, in January 2010. This is part one of a three-part series. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Welcome back, Dr. William Marshner, who received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University um, and a doctorate from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, Dr. William Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has since served continuously as a professor of theology. He is a well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church. Please welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. William Marshner. The first thing that amazed the first generation of believers about Jesus was how one and the same person could have been through three such different stages of existence. The first stage is indicated in our Lord's word in uh, John 8:58. He says, "Before Abraham was, I am." Okay? He asserts his preexistence beyond time. Okay? Then he's in the flesh. He's crucified. Then he's raised and enters into a very mysterious state of being. This comes out at the very end of the very first sermon. Ah, chalk. Thank you, thank you, thank you, sir. The very end of the very first sermon. That was, uh, oh, that's all right. I can write around it. That was a preaching of the gospel. I'm talking about Peter's sermon on the first Pentecost. Okay? Do you all remember how it ends up? Right before he says, uh, okay, folks, now it's time to repent. Uh, if you want to be saved, repent and be baptized. Right before, when he comes to the end of his speech proper, he says, this same Jesus whom you guys crucified. That very one. God has made both Lord and Christ. Kyrion kai Christon. There you have the mystery, if you will, of the resurrection. But it isn't just that he comes back to life. It's that he comes back in a higher stage of being, of glory. We talk about the glorified body. And it was right there that people had the first really great crisis of faith. Those who had the blessed privilege of witnessing our Lord's appearances, even those who had direct vision of the risen Christ, did not plumb the mystery of what they were seeing. Even for eyewitnesses, our Lord was an object of faith. Witnesses to the resurrection never fully saw or understood the state of being into which Jesus had entered after his death. 
direct vision of the earthly Jesus therefore left plenty of room for faith. Before he was glorified, when he looked just like you and me, there was plenty of room for faith. Even the most certain events in his life, from the point of view of historians, his birth, his sufferings, his crucifixion, his death, there was that nasty modernist at the beginning of the 20th century named Alfred Loisie. He was famous for saying one time that the only article in the Apostles' Creed, which he believed literally, was the article that said, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Okay? Even those most historically certain events are objects of faith because the visibility that they had in the humanity of our Lord did not exhaust their reality. These events were not the birth, the suffering, the crucifixion, etc., of an ordinary Joe, but of a God-man. And so, where am I going with this? Here's where I'm going. The distinction that you usually hear when theologians start talking about Jesus in the Bible and so on, the distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is a false distinction. Okay? There was never any difference between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. People who saw him face to faith, <coughs> face to face, were such that some believed and most did not, like the Pharisees. Okay? It isn't as though there was an ordinary, non-controversial Jesus, and then the resurrection made him an object of, gee whiz, some speculation. Not at all. From the very beginning, he was both a fact in history and an object of faith. So don't let me hear any more about this Jesus of history and Christ of faith as though they were different. Before we go on into the meat of what I have to say this morning, I'm going to talk for all three weeks about our Lord, about the mystery of his incarnation. Uh, and I'm going to be doing about a third of that this morning, God willing. And before I get into the meat of it, I want to call your attention to something that the Apostle Peter says in his second epistle. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Come on, people, who's got one? Don't sit on your hands. Here we go. 2 Peter 1, 8. Well, verse 8 is the, uh, the bottom line, but the whole context is very interesting. By the way, I'm very disorganized this morning because I'm, I'm still out of class. Next week, I'll have been through my first week of class. I'll be completely combobulated. This morning, I couldn't even find my good Bible, so I dragged this thing along. Thank goodness I had old ones. By the way, it's a very good sign if you don't know where your Bible is. Yes, because that means you were probably reading it and left it somewhere. If you know where it is, it's always in the same place, gathering the same dust, right? <coughs> ah. All right. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin back at verse 5. Employing all care, minister in your faith virtue, and in virtue knowledge, and in knowledge abstinence, and in abstinence patience, and in patience godliness, and in godliness love of brotherhood, and in love of the brethren charity. For if these things are with you and abound, they will make you be neither empty nor unfruitful in what? in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? If you abound in these virtues, 
you are going to progress in the knowledge of Jesus. It deserves thinking about. Because it connects theology to the kind of Christian life that we are called to lead. And to understand Peter's point, um, I want to ask you a simple question. Can a worldly, profane person Now let's start somewhere else. Let's turn it around. Let's start this way. Can a good person understand a bad person? Do you understand a, a drunk? Do you understand a sex, of, I mean, a sex addict? Do you understand a Czech forger? Sure. Okay. Because we all know the same human batch of temptations, right? So the saints can understand the sinners, no problem. Now turn it around. Can a bad person understand a good one? Does that ever happen? Not really. If you are sunk in vice, you think everybody's the same way. Anybody who doesn't seem to be as sunk in vice as you are, you suspect of secret sin and hypocrisy. Jesus is morally perfect. Okay. You haven't got a prayer of a chance of understanding what made him tick unless you progress in that life of self-denial, love of the brethren, abstinence, and so on. So says the Apostle Peter. Provided he wrote 2 Peter, which some deny, but we won't discuss such people here this morning. I want to move on to St. Paul. And call your attention to the many times in which St. Paul emphasizes those three stages, if you will, of the Lord's life. He stresses many times the eternal preexistence of the Son of God. One of my favorite such places is in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 8, verse 9. Open it up. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Now see who can embarrass me here. You find it first. You got it? Read it to me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he was poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Yeah. Here we go. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means his, his loving kindness. That he did what? That being rich, he became poor for your sakes. That through his poverty you might be rich. Okay? I call that one of St. Paul's paradox texts. Okay? How I'm supposed to get rich through somebody else's wealth, that I understand. But how am I going to get rich through somebody else's poverty? You see the paradox. Okay? But being rich, he became poor for our sake so that through his poverty, we might become rich. He's talking about the divine nature, that's the riches, and the human nature, that's the poverty. Okay? Being rich, divine, he became poor for our sake, so that through his humanity, we might become rich. 
Our Lord is our Savior because of His humanity, because of the flesh in which He was able to suffer and make atonement to the Father on our behalf. Right? Um, in this same vein, there is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Where's my speed king over here? Colossians 1.15, talking about our Lord, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the remission of sins. There's the blood. There's the earthly stage. Now this one, through whose blood we have redemption, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of every creature. Okay? The word in the Greek is icon. The image of the invisible God. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. Can a visible thing be a very effective image of an invisible thing. You think so? Gee. All right, fine. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Okay? Now then, what St. Paul is telling us in there is about his eternal pre-existence. He was brought forth before every creature. Okay? Oh, and this is a fun, this is a fun verse to know because you might someday get a visit from a Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Don't send them away untroubled. Invite them in. Welcome to my parlor, says the spider. Okay. Because these people have a twisted interpretation of this very passage. All right. By the way, if you can cite it to them in Greek, you've won already. Not one in 500 of those people knows any Greek at all, even though they've got this miserable Bible translation that's full of footnotes about what it supposedly says. Firstborn. Prototokos. Pases, K-T-I-S-E-O-S, long O. Aren't you glad I decided to put it up in English letters? Yes. All right. <laughs> all thank me at once. Prototokos pases ktiseos. All right. They're going to say to you, that means that of all the creatures, he was the first. The first of the creatures. Yeah, the top creature. But in fact, that's not what the text means. Okay? In Greek, this, is, uh, <clears throat> this here is a genitive case, for those of you who like that sort of grammar thing. Genitive case, and one of the uses of the genitive, in Cre uh, genitive case in Greek is comparison. Just like in Latin, it's the ablative of comparison. School students always hate this because we don't change the case of a word in English. If I say, uh, I am taller than he, well, hardly anybody says that because hardly anybody speaks the king's English anymore. People say, I'm taller than him. All right? In Latin, you'd have to say, eo, altior eo, ablative of comparison. In Greek, you use the genitive. So it means he's the firstborn before every creature. It's a genitive of comparison. All right. <clears throat> I want to go on now to... Um, probably the most central 
of all the texts in St. Paul that emphasize our Lord's transcendental existence through these three so utterly distinct phases, if you will. The passage I have in mind is in Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Get Philippians open. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now, this is a famous one. You all know this. And by the way, it's a great one with which to hit Jehovah's Witnesses over the head. He's talking about um, don't selfishly pay attention only to your own stuff. Pay attention to other people's stuff also. In other words, have the mentality that was also in Jesus Christ. Who, here we go, being in the form of God, thought it not plunder, something to hold on to, to be equal with God, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being made in the likeness of men and in habit found as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For which cause God also hath exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess and so on. Okay? What you've got there can be diagrammed like this. He begins in heaven, being in the form of God. En morphe feu. He's in the form of God. Then he humbles himself. He doesn't cling to that equality with God. He, he, he doesn't consider it something to hold, this, this, this is me, this, this is my patrimony here from the eternal father. I've got to keep hold of this. No, no, no. He very generously lays his glory by. You know the carol. Mild he lays his glory by. All right? And he takes on the form of a servant. And morphe dulu. Servant, in form of servant. And make, makes himself obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. There is the glorified state, the resurrected state into which he enters. All right? All three of these stages are thus on display in this passage. Now, why is it interesting? Okay. First of all, notice, please, that you cannot hold the doctrine I just presented to you. One and the same being starts out in form of God, acquires form of servant, and returns to a state of glory. You can't hold that simple doctrine unless you hold the highest known Christology. The very highest doctrine that says he started out as a pre-existent, well, he didn't start. <laughs> Let's stop right there. He never started out. He pre-existed eternally came into our mode of life, our flesh, our time, and then returned to the Father's glory. That Christology is supposed to have been in Oh, very late, very late. Oh, that's, yeah, that, according to the, the development of Christology people, nobody thought of this until, oh, probably the 90s of the first century, okay? They have to admit it was thought of by then. They want to date St. John's Gospel as late as possible, around 90 A.D., okay? And there at the beginning of John's Gospel, they're stuck with it. In the beginning was the Word. And it became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, okay. 
So they have to admit it then. But they try to read every text earlier than that in such a way as to avoid precisely all three of these stages. They want a low Christology. They want just a human Jesus. Here we go, skip that. Starts down here. Then at the resurrection, well, uh, he gets um, higher titles or something. Low Christology. Long before any of that development is supposed to have happened, St. Paul wrote the epistle to the Philippians. Paul died in the 60s of the first century. Okay. Not only that, but this utterly famous passage was not originally written by St. Paul. No. How do I know that? Because it's not in his grammar. It's a very strange passage. To get the flavor of this passage, if you're an English-speaking person, to get the flavor of this passage, I want you to think how things sound when you leave out the definite and indefinite article everywhere. Okay? You know, the and uh. One should leave it out. Somebody who you might know who speaks like this will be somebody from Russia because in the Russian is no article, okay? Is no article in Russian. And that's exactly how this passage sounds in Greek. It sounds like this. Who was in form of God and did not count to be equal to God, thing to grab, but emptied himself and took form of servant and became obedient unto death, even death of cross. Okay. Wherefore God has exalted him and given him name above every name. See how funny that sounds? That's exactly how this is written. We call this style of writing anarthrous. A-N-A-R-T-H-R-O-U-S, anarthrous, means it's got no articles in it. Okay? Sounds like it, it should mean you've got no joints. You're not an arthropod anymore, you've got no joints. What it means is, in grammar talk, it means the passage has no articles in it. Now, there are a couple of passages like this in the New Testament where writers who normally write perfectly idiomatic Greek, full of the word the, Every time you turn it around, they use it even in front of abstract nouns, with the French do, you know. In French, there's no such thing as life. It is the life. This is the life. Yes. Greek uses the definite article even in front of abstract nouns. It's everywhere. And then all of a sudden, you get to a chunk of text, and the article disappears. That is a telltale sign that the passage has been translated from a language that did not have the definite article as a separate word. Ancient translation technique was very literal. People tried to keep word by word as close as possible to the original text. Now then, do we know of a language salient at this time in which there was no definite article as a separate word and in which this text might have pre-existed as a hymn. We sure do. That language is Aramaic. Mm -hmm. Now, when was the church primarily Aramaic speaking? In the 30s. In the 30s. And then the missions take off. And hymns that had been sung in Aramaic begin to be translated into Greek, that's what we've got here in this famous passage in, Second Corinthians, um, in Philippians. Okay? A pre-Pauline hymn translated from Aramaic, and it is perfect. 
The Christology is as high as the sky. So in other words, it's perfectly orthodox. Whenever you hear people wondering about high Christology, forget the word high Christology, just say orthodoxy. Okay. Many people are allergic to that word, <laughs> but don't be. All right, now I want to say one more thing about this passage, but I can't because my timekeeper is back there enforcing <laughs> the holy and blessed break. All right, are we all back in tune here? Okay, before I get to uh, the really big point I wanted to make, let me show you another small point that comes out in this passage. When I was able to write about his pre-existence, I was able to use St. Paul's own words. He was in the form of God. Then when he took flesh, he took the form of a servant. Then when he reached the glorified state, I couldn't use a phrase in St. Paul. He didn't say uh, morphe angelu or anything like that. There's no third form. There's his humanity and there's his divinity. When he rises from the dead, he does not lay his humanity by. Okay? He keeps it with him. The servant is now glorified, yes, and reigning in heaven. So in other words, Christ's marriage to human flesh is an eternal marriage. Once it began, it will never stop. His unity with our kind goes on forever. Now, the really big thing I wanted to show you has to do with a detail in the grammar of the Greek. All right? Jehovah's Witness fans, listen up now because this is dynamite. About his eternal state, it says, en morphe, that's a long E, theu, H, Y, P, A, R, C, H, long O, N, hiparchon, that's a C, C, H, which means existing, or being, it's present participle, okay? who being in the form of God, okay? Now, when St. Paul switches to this stage, we switch to um, what's called in Greek the past tense, except Greek doesn't call anything the past tense. They've got this fancy word, the aorist, okay? A-O-R-I-S-T. Other languages are content with a past tense, not the Greeks. Everything has to be fancy in Greek. He switches to the aorist, okay? He emptied himself. Echinesen, okay? First aorist. And he elabon. He took on the form of a servant, which is a second aorist form. The combination of the present participle, hyparchon, plus the aorist verb, gives you the sense that while he remained in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant. In other words, there is no hint or trace in this passage, read carefully, there's no hint or trace here, of what I call Frog Prince Christology. Okay? He was first in the form of prince. Then he changed into the form of frog. No, no, no. Okay? I have a reason to attack Frog Prince Christology. Wasn't that story originally from the Brothers Grimm? Yeah. And you know what country the Brothers Grimm were from? Yeah, and who's the most famous Jesuit theologian of the 20th century? God help us, Karl Rahner, who has a fascinating reinvention 
of Frog Prince Christology. It must run in the Teutonic blood, I don't know. Okay. But he didn't change out of being God. He didn't cease. He didn't become something else like the enchanted prince and then go back to his God state. Not at all. Rather, he continues in the form of God while acquiring the form of a servant, keeping both in the glorified state. And so we see in this passage the first hint of classical two natures Christology. That's the Christology we work, we've been working with in the church ever since. Two natures, the divine and the human, perfectly united, each entire, yes? And uh, when we all meet again next week, I'll be getting into uh, patristic texts on this, and we'll be looking into the mysteries of how these two natures could come together. Eventually, we would learn a very complicated way to give the right answer to the question how these two natures could come together. We learn to call it, are you ready for this? A hypostatic union. Now there's a word that you use every day, isn't it? Hypostatic. Nothing to do with static electricity, I assure you. And uh, I'm going to have to explain that word before this series is done, because it's a great word, extremely important. <clears throat> but long before that term was invented, the idea of the two natures in the same one who was in this form and then got that one and then was glorified, two natures in the same one is already expressed in this hymn which was originally in Aramaic and therefore may jolly well have had a Palestinian origin. Okay? From the very dawn of the gospel, we have this. And as far as the full divinity of our Lord is concerned and his bodiliness, here's the short remedy if a Jehovah's Witness rings your doorbell, okay? Yeah, 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 take them to 2 Corinthians, if, uh, take them to Colossians 1.15 if you have the time, take them to Philippians chapter 2 if you have half an hour to chat with these people, but if you're pressed for time, or if you don't take fools gladly, <laughs> take them straight to Colossians the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9. All right, now we are going to have a contest to see whose translation is the worst. <laughs> Don't you think it would make a good TV show? Okay, have a whole bunch of contestants, each with a different version of Scripture. We call the show Twist That Text. <laughs> All right, who's got Colossians 2, verse 9? Give me a version. Yes, ma'am. For in him dwells the whole fullness of the deity bodily. In him dwelt the whole fullness of the deity bodily. Not bad. What else? Anybody else got? For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the version I grew up with. Anybody else got one? Anything significantly different? Yeah. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Yeah. All right. This is a crucial text. When you put it, well, it's obvious what it says. And it becomes even stronger when you look at it in its context. Colossae was a town in which there was a large Jewish community that had entered into a form of speculation that has long been forgotten in Orthodox Judaism, but was rampant in the first century of our era. 
a kind of speculative angelology tinged with a little Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically means a hatred of the flesh. Okay? That was a mood, a dark mood, if you will, in late antiquity. People thought that the world was a trap and the flesh was unbearable. And um, I don't know. I think it would be easier for you to sympathize with their point of view if you project yourself back into a time when there was no such thing as medicine or modern medicine. No painkillers, no aspirin, no nose spray, <laughs> no surgery worth a darn. Okay. In those days, the flesh was a pain somewhere, right? You would have a couple of boisterous years in your youth, and then you'd start falling apart, and there was nothing that could be done about it. Anyway, people at that time developed this anti-body attitude, and it's called Gnosticism. And in, um, uh, in Colossae, in the Jewish community there, this was combined with a form of angel cult. Okay? So the body was evil, but as you went up the chain of the angels, you were getting to more and more pure beings. Okay? And finally, God would be at the top of the heap. Well, when St. Paul came to their town and started preaching the gospel, to the effect that a heavenly being had become man, had acquired flesh like ours, it could be crucified, he could feel pain, he could suffer. Okay? They right away leapt to the idea this cannot be God, the top of the pyramid, okay? the top of the hierarchy. Couldn't be. No fully worthy God would ever touch matter, let alone be born in it. However, they didn't reject Paul's message altogether. They just twisted it a bit to fit their own thinking. All right? Suppose you are boss of the universe, and you have many angels at your command, and you have a particularly unpleasant, dirty, nasty, smelly job that needs to be done. Whom do you send? The lowest of the totem pole. Okay? The lowest angel, that's who you'd send. Okay? An angel so low that even willing to have some contact with matter, you know what I mean? And so they said, well, thank you for all this information about, uh, uh, about Jesus. He must have been an angel incarnate, okay? but not God. And this is St. Paul's reply to that. Okay? No, no, no. What dwelt in him was not a thinned out share of divinity. There's a word in Greek for divinity. Theotes. T-H-E-I-O-T-E-S. Theotes. Divineness or divinity. It's an abstract noun from an adjective, theos, divine, godlike. Okay. All the angels would be godlike to some degree. They thought the least godlike would come and do this. St. Paul wanted to get over the whole idea of something that was just godlike. So he doesn't use this word, where it says the whole fullness of deity. Godhead in the text, in your translations? The word in Greek is unusual, very rare word, and uh, in the New Testament it's only here. Just leave the eye out. Now it's an abstract noun made directly from the word for God. Okay? To do that in English you have to say godness. 
godness. And that's what Godhead originally meant. Good old English, just as we still say hood, it's one way to make an abstract noun, personhood, okay? In old English, you can make an abstract noun by using H-E-A-D. That's what we have there in the King James. It's Godness, Godhead, Godhood. Okay? In him dwelt not just Godhood, but the whole fullness of it. Pan to pleroma teis theotetos, putting it into the genitive case where it belongs which is of no interest to anybody but us pedants. I mean, it's as though he couldn't put down enough words to get this meaning across. It ain't sort of funny money divineness, it's godness. And it's not some of it, it's all of it, all of it. Hey, not just all of it, but all of it, the highest degree of it. The point is the full and absolute divinity of Jesus Christ, that's why He's above all the angels. And um, now Jehovah's Witnesses cannot stand this verse. Their Christ is a creature. He cannot have the whole fullness of Godness. And how did it dwell in him? It dwelt in him, says the Greek, so ma ti kos. Long O's, somatikos. Long O-S at the end of a Greek word is like L-Y in English. It tells you it's an adverb. Bodily. Okay. Bodily. Okay. Now, I think I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the theology. No, no. Before we get to John, who's supposed to be late, and never mind the facts about that, because I don't think he's nearly as late as other people do. I want to take a piece of evidence from what is most certainly one of the earliest of St. Paul's epistles. Okay? First Corinthians. From the details in the book of Acts, and from what we know of the history of the Roman administration in Corinth, we can date St. Paul's visit to Corinth without mistake to the year 50 or 51. Okay? Then he goes away and writes back to them this letter that we have as 1 Corinthians. All right. And the verse I want you to look at, this is 1 Corinthians. This is, I'm looking for the place where he says, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. Ah! Verse 24, there it is. But unto them that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Okay. Now, when I first encountered that verse as a school kid, I thought that meant that God did a mighty smart thing to send Jesus. But that's not what it means. It means what he says. It means that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God of God. The wisdom of God is co-eternal with God. Okay. What do you think? Do you think that at some point God created his own wisdom? Okay. He was sort of blundering around like a divine fool and then he created wisdom and got smart? you think so? It's impossible to imagine that the wisdom of God is a creature, isn't it? By the way, this is why the Muslims cannot bring themselves to believe that their holy book, the Quran, 
is a created text. Even though it's in Arabic, which wasn't always spoken, they believe it's uncreated because they identify it with the wisdom of God. That's why. Okay? The wisdom of God cannot be a created thing. Help them to see that the wisdom of God cannot be just identically that book. And you've got them a step towards recognizing the true word of God. Hmm? Anyway, <clears throat> the wisdom of God is eternal with God. If you will look in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, Proverbs 8, verse 22. Wisdom has been saying that counsel and equity or fairness belongs to her. Prudence belongs to me, says wisdom. Through me, kings reign. Lawgivers decree just things. By me, princes rule, and so on. I walk in the way of justice in the midst of the paths of judgment. Now, verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his ways. Before he made anything from the beginning. I was set up from eternity and of old, before the earth was made. The depths were not yet made. And I was already conceived. Neither had the fountains of waters as yet sprung out. The mountains with their huge bulk had not yet been established. Before the hills I was brought forth. He had not yet made the earth, nor the rivers, nor the poles of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When with a certain law and compass he enclosed the depths, when he established the sky above and poised the fountains of waters, when he compassed the sea with its bounds, set a law to the waters, I was with him, forming all things, and was delighted every day, playing before him at all times. Okay. So the wisdom of God is before all creation, but it's with God. This was what the apostles learned to tell the Jews of their day to look at, to try to figure out who Jesus was. Okay? Who in the world could have been from all eternity and yet become man and walked among us and now returned in heavenly glory, working perfect redemption and yet a model of righteousness, justice, Decorum, everything. Who could that be except the divine wisdom? Not an angel incarnate, but the divine wisdom incarnate. Yes. And that's what St. Paul tells us. In the year 51 A.D., who is this Christ? He's the wisdom of God. Yeah. And since God does all things through his wisdom, it's also the power of God. How manifold are thy works, O Lord, in wisdom hast thou made them all. Yep, says the psalm. So Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Fully God. Because the wisdom of God can't be a creature. We just got over that. Fully God and yet not exactly the person of the Father. There it is. Something, well, someone co-eternal with the Father. This is what St. Paul began to teach people how to say already in the year 51. Okay? So perfectly high Christology, we call it wisdom Christology, is the oldest, the original, and the orthodox Christology. Now, my theme in these uh, talks next week and the week after is supposed to be flesh and blood. And here I've spent practically all morning talking about divinity. And whatever God is, he's not flesh and blood, right? Wrong. Wrong after the incarnation happens. 
God in his nature, of course, is vastly removed from flesh and blood. But there's no use talking about the flesh and blood of Jesus until we are convinced whose flesh and blood that is. Okay. Is this the flesh of Joe Dokes? Is this the flesh of Isaac the rabbi? Whose flesh and blood is this? Is it flesh and blood taken on by an angel? No. In fact, that was one of the early heresies. Okay. I'm going to be talking about the early heresies when we get together again, and what a problem that flesh and blood of our Lord turned out to be for heretics all through the first 200 years of the church's existence. Okay? And I want to leave you this morning with just one thought about that. Okay? Of the various denominations whose structures you can encounter here in Fairfax, okay? there's only one of those denominations that was around in the years 100 and 200 A.D. Well, I'm not saying anything against the Greek Orthodox. But it was the Catholic denomination that was there. We are the ones who went through the Gnostic crisis. And we have in the Catholic Church the world's best institutional memory. Okay? The Church remembers the crises through which she has been. The Protestants never passed through this crisis. Beginning their work in the 15th, 16th century, they all thought, oh yeah, flesh, blood, fine. Okay. Body, great, let's all get married. But we had been through that crisis and we remembered it, and that is why we venerate the Blessed Virgin. That's the key thing. She verifies that flesh and blood of Christ. She's the source of it. And this is why the heretics already in 107 A.D. would not honor her. Okay? They believed that true God could not become man, so she couldn't possibly have been his mother. Hmm? They wouldn't honor Mary. Oh, and get else? guess what else they wouldn't do? they wouldn't take the Eucharist. Because the church said this is the body of Christ. Body? What? Christ have body? No, horrible. Eh? So they wouldn't honor the Virgin, and they wouldn't take the Eucharist. The earliest signs of heretical belief. We learned about them from my friend Ignatius of Antioch, who went to his martyrdom in Rome in the year 107 A.D. Well, I was practically born by then. <laughs> All right, everybody, we'll leave it on that note for now. Uh, I have yacked up just about all the time we have so as to leave almost no room for questions. <laughs> but I bet I'll have to take some. What is it? What's the story? We're just going to do five minutes as usual, five questions max. Make sure your question is one sentence long, that it has to do with the topic we're talking about, and that on the end of your sentence, there's a question mark. Okay, so, question. This might be something in your later lecture, um, Dr. Marshall, but is God different at the end when he's God and Jesus' bodies together, that third phase? All right, the short but amazing answer is no. Okay? We have a hymn in the Eastern liturgy that emphasizes that very point, but it's also a matter of dogma. Who, without undergoing change, became man? Ah, huh? He didn't undergo any change. Okay? Many people find this very hard to understand. But that's because they don't understand the hypostatic union. But before too much longer, you all will.
Yes, Doctor, we've spoke of the Father and the Son and the third person of the Trinity. When will we get to the, the Holy Spirit? Well, this series is on the, uh, the incarnate word, so I'm not going to be saying much about him. I re- I'm sorry about that. Can't cover everything. But the divinity of the Holy Spirit is um, perfectly clear also in the oldest strata of the New Testament tradition. If I may speak like German scholar, for the oldest strata of the tradition, yeah. Uh, first of all, it's in the Synoptic Gospels. There's that saying, um, every blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. First of all, Can you blaspheme anybody except God? No. You can insult me, but you can't blaspheme me, right? And the only being against whom a blasphemy could possibly happen is God. And if he weren't God, why wouldn't it be readily forgivable? So there's proof right there of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, you also want to go to 1 Corinthians. Oh, boy. I think it's chapter 1. I think it's verse 12 where he's talking about the Holy Spirit searching all things, even the deep things of God. Who knows a man better than the spirit of the man within him? Okay. Nothing and nobody knows you better than your own mind does. Well, that, says St. Paul, is how the Holy Spirit knows God, to the depths. All right? Now then, can anything know God to the depths without being God? Hmm? Certainly not. Think of this. Do you know any infinite thing? Do you know any infinite thing? In a way, you do. Because you all know the counting numbers. One, two, three, four, five, and they go on without end, right? But do you know them to the depth? Do you know every counting number? No. And every mathematical truth? No. Every truth of number theory, no. You really would have to have an infinite mind to know that, wouldn't you? Just so, you cannot know God unless you have an infinite mind, which means you yourself are God. The divinity of the Holy Spirit is very clear there in St. Paul. Lots of other places could be mentioned as well, but he's not our topic this morning. You will remember that on our topics list for 2010 is a series by Dr. Marshner, a post-Pentecost series on the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, I was going to call you and tell you that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Another question. Okay, then. I have one for you as a final question. This is what happens in my parents' home during Christmas. My brother was there, and of course we were debating theology. And, uh, and we got into a debate of whether you can say that God is a human being. You can say God has a human nature, but can you say God is a human being? Okay. <clears throat> the answer is not simple. Okay? There is a sense in which you can say it. Why is that? Because human nature is what we call a substantial nature. Okay? When we talk about substances in English, it's different from how we talk about adjectives. Okay? I can say, George is black. Okay? George is jealous. George is purple. But... If I want to say that George has human nature, I have to shift my idiom and I have to say George is a man. 
You ever notice that? Isa is how we say in English is something has a substantial nature. And so you can say that God is a human being because he has a substantial nature. All right? On the other hand, if you say this, you must be aware that in the unique case of Christ, that substantial nature he has is not a substantial nature on the loose or possessed by a human person. It's a substantial nature possessed by the eternal word. So the best thing to say is, yes, he has a substantial nature, but the one who has that nature is fully divine. And I know you're all wondering. The answer is, I was right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. For more information, recorded programs, or schedules of upcoming events, visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org.